So if you don't know me, I'm Brian Geisler. I've been a member here at Anchor for about, since the beginning really, so about four years. Met my wife here, Chandon. We've been married about three and a half years. We have a daughter, Zoe, she's two and a half. So I'm really excited to be here preaching to you guys. We're going to be in Colossians 1, verse 16 primarily. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can go there. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back, or you can follow along in the projector here if it's uh, working. <laughs> so I'm going to pray. We'll get started. Father, I ask that you would just show us Jesus today. We'd see him in all of his glory, as creator, as redeemer. And God, you would change us to live, not for ourselves, but for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our series in Colossians 1, which we've titled, Through Him and For Him. And this phrase actually comes from the verse we're going to look at, verse 16. So what I want to first focus on is what Paul's main aim is here in Colossians. And his main aim is to correct some error in the church at Colossae. That if you look at the rest of the letter, it's clear that the Christians, they've started hearing and even, even believing to some new teachings that emphasize that there's, there's more to be had in the Christian life. That, that being saved by Jesus is great, but there's, this, there's a true knowledge, there's this true spirituality to be had and other things like, like philosophy or rituals or traditions or visions or religious, religious practice. That, sure, you can be a Christian saved by Jesus, but what you really need is to seek the true knowledge and wisdom available in these other things. And as Joe pointed out last week, Paul's telling him, no, no, the Christian life, all of life, is Jesus. That all you need to be a Christian, all you need to mature and to grow and to be saved is Jesus. That if you want true knowledge, if you want true wisdom, they're not going to be found in philosophy or religion, but they're found in a person, and his name is Jesus. He makes this clear in chapter 2. He says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And if you, he says that if you're looking for the truth, if you're looking for the way, if you're looking for life, you'll find them in Jesus. So it's not surprising that he opens the letter with this section that's showing us this amazing picture of who Jesus is. And Joe last week helpfully pointed out in verse 15 that that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That if you want to know who God is, if you want to see God, you can look at Jesus. And second, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Not that Jesus himself was created, but that he's positionally first among all. And he's the heir of all things. So now we're going to focus on verse 16. Let me read it. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, there are three main truths about Jesus that, I want, that we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. And the first one is that Jesus is the creator. We see this in the first part of the verse. It says, by him, all things were created. And in the last part of the verse, which says that all things were created through him. And this is, this is radical. That if you were a first century Jew who, who was hearing this, you would call Paul a blasphemer. He's saying that a man was God. He was creator God. That even today, if you were a practicing Jew or if you are a Muslim and you heard this, you would be offended. Paul's saying that Jesus, the Christ, the man who 30 years earlier had died on the cross and rose again from the dead, the same Jesus, he created everything. And specifically that all things were created through Jesus. And we're getting a glimpse into the mystery of the Trinity that where God is one God and he's three persons, 
Father, Son, Spirit. And that God created everything. And Jesus, God the Son, he was the primary agent through whom God created the heavens and the earth. That Jesus, God the Son, he carried out God the Father's will in making everything. So now we really have to question, Paul, do you really mean this? Are you really saying this? And when you look at it, it's yes, he's saying this. But what I want to show you is that this isn't new with Paul. That this, this idea is woven throughout Scripture, that Jesus is creator. As you follow the story arc of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through the New Testament, that, that it speaks of Jesus as creator. Now, some of these places are just hints, but other places just outright proclaim that this is who he is. So we're, I'm going to show you a few of these places. So first, we'll start in the creation account itself. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. Now, this one's really subtle. It doesn't mention God the Son or doesn't mention Jesus, but what I want to show you is that in this verse... It hints at the fact that the Trinity is there at creation. So, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And listen to this part. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, again, there's no reference to Jesus here, but what we do see is that there's God creating the heavens and the earth, and that there's the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. It's not explicitly saying here that Jesus created the world, but it's hinting at the fact that the Trinity is there present when he's creating it. So it's a helpful aside here to say that God didn't need to create the world because he was lonely or because he needed us, because he needed it. He already has love and community within himself between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That God is creating the world as an overflow, an expression of this love that he has. So now moving on from Genesis, let's visit the Psalms. And the Psalms, they're songs of praise to God, written primarily by King David in the Old Testament. You'll find that as you read them, as you read the Psalms and as you read the New Testament, that the Psalms are all about Jesus. The New Testament quote, quotes the Psalms all the time and, and specifically says that they're talking about Jesus. So one example of this is in Hebrews chapter 1. It quotes a few Psalms. And it says in verse 8, of the Son, it says, and then he quotes a few Psalms. So he says, of Jesus, it's saying this. One of these Psalms is Psalm 102. Listen to verses 25 and 26. Again, it says, Of Jesus, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Of old you, Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your, of Jesus' hands. That Jesus himself laid the foundations of the earth, and that Jesus made the heavens. So we have Genesis, we have Psalms, let's move on to the prophets. That long ago, God sent prophets to the nation of Israel, because the, the Israel kept rebelling against him, and he, and he sent prophets to call them back to himself. But, and so they would call them back to himself, they would call them to repentance, but in the midst of this, speaking on God's behalf, they would speak of this coming one, this coming Messiah, this one who would save us from all of our sins. And in one of these passages from Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of the names that we would give to this Messiah. Now, this, this passage might sound familiar to you because you typically hear it around Christmas time. But keep in mind, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. This is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, that's Jesus, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God, Everlasting Father. But these aren't names for a man. These are names reserved for God. 
And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that there's a common refrain when it speaks of God, that the Lord God, it'll say the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. That in the Bible, God and creator are, are inseparable. And, if, and if this child, this Jesus, is going to be named Mighty God, it's implying that he's, he's also creator God, maker of heaven and earth. So Genesis, we have Psalms, prophets, showing in various degrees, Jesus is creator. And what about the accounts of Jesus himself? What about the Gospels? So first we'll go to John's account of Jesus' life and ministry. John is an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years. And he opens his account, we read it earlier, with one of the most amazing statements about Jesus. And it parallels our Colossians verse really closely. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, John, his grammar is kind of funny sometimes. <laughs> but in short, Jesus made everything. He was not created. He was with God from the beginning, and he's been with him forever. And Jesus is God, and he created everything. And anything that was created was created by him. There's not anything here that was created that wasn't created by him. So we've heard from an eyewitness of Jesus. And what about Jesus himself? Did Jesus speak anything of this reality? And yes, several places. If you look throughout John, you'll see that he, he says many statements of referring to himself as God or creator. Uh, but we're not going to focus on those. If, that's good homework assignment for you. If you want to read John, you read through it, and at the end you'll be convinced that Jesus is God, or at least that he believed he was God. <laughs> but there's one place outside of John that always floors me, and that's in Mark, the end of chapter 2. Let me set up some context. If you go back to Genesis... God created the world and created mankind in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rests. And this became the basis for the Jewish Sabbath day. So the nation of Israel, every Saturday, they would, they would cease from their labor and they would rest. And they would spend this time to acknowledge that God is creator and he's the sustainer of all things and he's provider of all things. So they rested. So they used this day to proclaim God's goodness and his being creator. Now, fast forward to Mark chapter 2. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they're getting hungry. So they did something forbidden on the Sabbath, which was to pick some heads of grain to eat. Now, this was considered labor. So the religious leaders of the day, who were also incredibly legalistic about the Sabbath day, they had all kinds of crazy rules about what was labor and what wasn't labor, and they had all these workarounds to be able to do labor but not call it labor. But they started criticizing Jesus for letting them pick these heads of grain. And then, but at the end of this, Jesus says something amazing. Listen to the story. The end of Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus responds first with a quote of the Old Testament, speaking to the story of David, where he did something similar. I know we're not going to focus on that. We'll skip down a little bit. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now listen to this part. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That Jesus is outright saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is set aside to honor God, creator God as Lord. And that he himself is this Lord. That he's the one honored and proclaimed and worshipped on the Sabbath day. So we've seen throughout scripture 
Genesis, Psalms, Prophets, Gospels, Jesus, that Jesus is our creator. He's God. And that was our first truth in the Colossians text. The second truth, it's related. It's that Jesus created everything which makes him Lord of all, both visible and invisible. So let's return to the verse. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So Paul is expanding here when he says, he's expanding on what he means when he says all things. He wants to make it crystal, crystal clear that when he says all things, he really means all things. And he says both things both visible and invisible. Visible. So first things visible. So if you imagine what you could see, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the material that made this podium here, the, the plants and animals that were in your breakfast this morning, bacteria, microorganisms, matter, the electrons and materials in your phone if you're following along in the scriptures or if you're playing a game or whatever you're doing. The laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, that the rubber and the friction that kept your tires on the road on the way here to the Boys and Girls Club. Oceans, fish, whales, land, mountains, lakes, rivers, trees, sunsets, all the processes in your heart and mind and soul that cause you to wonder when you see these sunsets, when you look off the top of a mountain, you hear an amazing song, and you look into your lover's eyes. He created all the things that make human life enjoyable, beauty, pleasure, work, family, companionship, or capacity to love and create. He made you, he made me, he made everybody. He made the kings and the peasants, the presidents and the laborers, the rulers and the ruled, the masters, the servants, the blue-collar, white-collar, rich, poor, high, low, black, white, green. No matter who you are, he knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That all of our life and breath and our existence comes from Jesus. So he made everything visible. And then he made all things invisible. That the scriptures teach us that everything we see isn't the whole picture of reality. That, there's, that behind what we see and we hear and smell and touch and taste are invisible realities. Things like angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim. And we don't know much about these, but we know they are heavenly beings we can't see. And they're created to serve and worship and give honor to God Most High. You see reference to them throughout the scriptures. Things like Mark, Michael the archangel and Gabriel who told Mary that she would give birth to Jesus. And the angels who celebrate when Jesus is born with the shepherds. But one reason why Paul is including this part in Colossians is that this church is apparently taking a keen interest in angels and visions. In chapter 2, verse 18, he, he warns them against worshiping angels. Paul wants them to worship Jesus because Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus made the angels. Hebrews 1 speaks of this too. It references Psalm 97. And again, it says, of Jesus, it says... Let all God's angels worship him. That's Jesus. It also references Psalm 104. It said, He makes his messengers, or his angels, winds, and his ministers a flaming fire. That Jesus himself, he made the angels, and the angels worship him. He's not an angel himself. Some will teach you that. He's not an angel. He made them, and they worship him. He's God. So we've covered things visible. Invisible. And I want to draw attention to this phrase, thrones and dominions, or rulers or authorities. That whenever Paul uses this language, to some degree, he's, he's probably talking about earthly thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities and countries and rulers. 
But he's usually referring to spiritual powers here. That there's different rankings of angels that he's referring to, and also evil spiritual powers like Satan and demons, and evil spirits. Now, this, this doesn't mean that Jesus created demons as evil. It, it, scriptures actually teach that he created all the angels, and then some of them rebelled against him and became evil. But what it does mean is that while they did rebel, they're still created by him. And they're still ultimately under his rule. That there's a reason why, if you look in Mark's gospel, when he encounters a demon, that the demon comes and says, oh, the Son of God is here. And he asks Jesus not to torment him. That demons, even evil demons, are still under Jesus' authority and rule. So what Paul's implying here is that all things, good and evil, great and small, they ultimately owe their existence to Jesus. Because he created everything, he has ultimate authority over everything. That nothing happens apart from his decree or his permission. And one day, he will return to fully establish his kingdom and make everything right. So that's our second truth, that Jesus created everything, which makes him Lord of everything. Third truth. All things were created for Jesus' glory. Notice the end of the verse. All things were created through him and for him. Another way you could translate for him is unto him. That all things were created unto Jesus in his praise and his glory and his honor. Now, it's difficult to read any passage of scripture and not see something pointing to the fact that all things were created by God and for God for his glory. And if we've already established that Jesus himself is God, then these same passages apply to Jesus himself. So I want to take you through a few of these passages. Start with Psalm 19, 1 to 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The stars, the moon, the sun, that they're, they're speaking of Jesus' glory. Jesus also says in Matthew 5, he's talking to his followers, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And, and the reason he wants you to do this, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the point of good works is to give God the glory. Give Jesus the glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then we see in Revelation at the end of days this phrase. It says, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power. Now listen to this connection with creation. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is creator God, and therefore worthy are you, God, to receive honor and glory and praise. It's the whole point of it all. Now if we spend long enough time, we could literally find hundreds of verses like this throughout the scriptures. That God is the goal of creation. That Jesus is the goal of creation, we see in Colossians. His glory, his name, his praise, his honor. So we have these three truths. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is creator, Jesus is Lord of all, and it's all here for his fame, glory, and honor. Then the question you have to ask yourself is what do you do with this? This is weighty stuff. What do you do? So first, you need to understand that it's true. And that it's true about you. That Jesus made you, specifically you, and he made you for him. Now, second, you need to see that you have a problem, that we all have a problem, and it's the same problem, that we all, whether you're a Christian or not, don't live this reality. That here's, let me explain to you, here's how I operate a lot of the time, and I bet this will sound familiar to many of you, that I, I don't go to work, home, here, 
with a continual understanding that I was made through him or for him, or that all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. I operate with a different version of this verse. So the refresher of the verse, the end of the verse, it's all things were created through him and for him. My version goes something different. It starts with all things, so that we have that in common. Then it goes, all things are here, and they're for me. So the first part, all things are here. Not that they're created by Jesus or through Jesus, they're just here. And we might believe this for a variety of reasons. You might not even believe there's a God at all. Or perhaps worse, you might believe there is a God, but you either don't care or you're too busy to acknowledge that he created everything around us. We operate as, as if it's all just here, just here, as Joe said, to get from point A to point B. Or just to entertain us or get us through the day or serve our career or whatever our goals are. And all things are just here. And the second part, they're for me, not for Jesus. This takes different forms. You can say all things are here for my career, or for my kids, or for my house, or my name, or fame, or friends, my boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband. Food, entertainment, my comfort, my addiction. And however you slice or dice it, ultimately it comes down that all things are here and they're for me. This is the same, this is the fruit of what happened all the way back in Genesis, chapter 3, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God and went their own way. It's the same way we operate. So I'll give some background and we'll look at a verse there. So God created everything he called it good. He creates Adam and Eve, our first parents, and calls it very good. Gives them life and an amazing garden to live in. Walked with them in the cool of the day. They lived for him and they lived in full joy as we were meant to live. And he gave them one command. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will surely die. Now they listened to God for a while. They lived in this glory. But in Genesis 3, they decided to go their own way. And they wanted to be like God. That this was all for them. So Satan tempts them to eat from this tree. And listen to, listen to how Eve responds. So when the woman, it's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Listen to those phrases. She saw it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It would make her wise. This tree is there for her. You can almost hear the conversation in her head. Oh, I know God said not to eat this, but think of what this will do for me. It'll be delicious. It'll, it'll be nourishing. It'll make me wise. How, how could he not want me to have this? It's good for me. And Adam is there. He's not saying anything. He's like, oh, he's not saying to her, God knows what he's doing. Run, run, run away from this. Instead, he remains silent, possibly concerned for himself what will happen if he, if he confronts Eve or maybe he's excited about what the fruit could offer him too. And at this moment, God is out of their picture that all these things in front of them are just there and they're for them. God didn't create them. They're not for his honor, they're for them. So they're treating it just as we do. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit and they rebel against God because they wanted it to be for them. It's the same story with us today. But all things are here and they're for me. So now the question is, how did God respond to this? In two ways. First, he cursed us in the earth. We die. We experience earthquakes and hurricanes and famines, droughts, hardship, suffering. We inherit Adam and Eve's rebellious hearts. That we live as if all things are here and they're for me. We hate and we steal and we murder and gossip and slander. If we don't do those things externally, we do them in our hearts. We dishonor God. We don't live for him. Our world is broken and we're in open rebellion against God. And then all who die apart from Jesus will perish in hell apart from God forever. 
But that's not the only way God responded to this. Alongside this curse, God also made a promise that one was coming who was going to crush Satan and be bruised in the process. And through history, God would promise again and again, he's coming, he's coming, this one's coming, he's going to rescue you from your sins or rebellion. Wait for him, look for him, he's coming. And that brings us back to our problem in Colossians. We've seen in verse 16 that all things are created through Jesus and for Jesus, but we've seen in our own lives in Genesis 3 that we live like all things are here and they're for me. So the question is, how did God fulfill his promise to rescue us from ourselves? Jump down to verse 19. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this is referring to the man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, that all the fullness of God dwelled within him, that Jesus is God himself. So God, he's creator God, responded to his rebellious creation, this creation who decided to live for ourselves, not by destroying it, but by coming into it. As a man, Jesus Christ, that God came and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt among rebels. Not as an earthly king or a rich ruler or a powerful person who would rule over us, but as a peasant who would serve us. That God became one of us. He had a body. He tasted food. He sweated. He labored. He cried. He laughed. He walked. He got tired. And we'll see what else he did if we keep reading the verse. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus entered creation, he becomes one of us, and he reconciles us to him. He makes peace with us self-worshipping rebels. How? It says here, by the blood of his cross that he, though never having sinned himself, gave himself up to die on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for our sins, that he bore all of God's wrath for us living for ourselves, that the God who cursed us for the rebellion became the curse himself, that God who punished sin with death, he tasted death himself, that we might live forever. He took on the punishment for our selfishness and our self-worship, that we would be made right with God. Listen to how Paul explains this further. Verse 20. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So that's kind of another way of saying all things are here and they're for me. That makes you alienated from God, hostile in mind to him, doing evil. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That you were once alienated from him, if you're in Christ. You were once hostile in mind, doing evil, living for yourself. But now, because he came in the flesh, because he died, because he rose from the dead, you are reconciled to God. The same God who created everything and all things through Jesus and for Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, today is the day for you to be reconciled to God. Today is the day. Repent and believe. So, Jesus, we live for ourselves. All things are here and for me. And Jesus comes to rescue us from living for ourselves from our version of this verse, to what's actually there. He changes you. He changes you from your version to what's there. He changes you to live for him and not for yourself. This miracle is all over the Bible. We'll visit a few verses that describe it. Now, as you hear these verses, think of the the two versions. The first version, through him and for him. The other version, it's all here and it's for me. So first, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. 
He's speaking to this church, and he says, you have turned from idols to serve the living God. So in Christ, you've turned from idols, for me, to serve the living God, for him. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, speaks of us this way. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That now you're a chosen people, and your whole existence is proclaiming his excellence, that he's taken you from this kingdom of darkness for me, and brought you into this kingdom of light it's for him. The last one, 2 Corinthians 5.15, uses really similar language. Jesus died for all, that those who live, those who are in him, who believe in him, might no longer live for themselves, for me, but for him, for him, who for their sake died and was raised. That he came and he died and he rose, and when you turn to him, he gives you a new heart, a new mind that throws away our version of this verse and puts back the right one. That all things were created through him and for him. It gives us new hearts and minds that say, you made me and I exist for you in your name. I remember a few weeks after I got saved in college, I was walking out of my dorm room into the sunlight, and the world just looked different. I looked at the, the sky and the, the sun and just knew that God is God, that he's good and he's with me and he's Lord and I'm his. And when you're in Christ, he gives you his spirit and his mind and his heart to live for him, not for yourself. This changes everything. It changes the big, like your marriage, your singleness, your career, your friendships, your parenting. It changes the small, like your meal after church today. Your run around Green Lake, your trip to the store. And now this run is created by Jesus and through Jesus. All these processes in my legs as I run, as I feel good from exercising, it's made by him, and I can worship him as I run. It changes how you handle success and how you handle failure. Successes are all from him and for him, and failure, failure is from him for to teach us something, and we can still worship him through it. Changes how you celebrate pleasure, pleasure and how you endure pain. Changes everything. That all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. That even though we wanted to live for ourselves, Jesus transformed us to live for him. And, we will continue, and he will continue this work until every knee bows before his name. I'll close with Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not just leaving us in our state of rebelling against you and spitting in your face. Thank you for coming and dwelling among us and dying for our sins and rising from the dead, making us yours. I pray that you'd stow compassion for your name in this church and that your glory would, would reign in this church and in this city. 
In Jesus' name, amen.